Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. This is the Halloween edition, and we are here with Zach Durr. Zach, uh, say hello to everybody. Hi, Bill. It's an honor to be on the on the program. I'm a big fan. Awesome. I'm glad uh, glad you're a listener, but most especially glad to have you on for our spooky uh, Mormon Discussion Halloween edition. And uh, this should be a ton of fun. If you're listening to this, I hope you're listening to this on Halloween. That's the the day it will release. This should be a lot of fun for listeners. Zach, get us started though. Before we jump into uh, Mormon ghost stories and and Mormon spirits in our theology, let's start off with an introduction and just tell tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, I'm 38 years old. I'm an attorney. I live in Holiday, Utah, so the suburb of Salt Lake City. Um, I have five children, and um, I uh, my my mother actually a church historian. Her name is Jill Mulvey Durr, and she's worked on um, she worked on the the book of the Relief Society minutes that came out. She's working on a biography of Eliza R. Snow. So I've I've always kind of been interested in Mormon history. Uh, heard it discussed around the the dinner table. And, um, just, just a little bit about me. I grew up in, uh, Northern Utah County in a town called Alpine in the 1980s. And at that time there was, uh, to, to kind of segue into the, the ghost topic, um, there, there was a, a lot of fear mongering going on about the, uh, the threat of Satanism and Satanic cults. So I remember being petrified as a child, hearing these scary stories at church and and on the schoolyard, uh, and and so after I kind of got over that fear, I've I've been a little bit interested in trying to to drill down and figure what that was all about, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but that's kind of part of part of why I'm interested in this. I I enjoy a good ghost story and uh, think think it's kind of a fun uh, part of Mormonism. Excellent. So before we jump into the spooky spirits and the, the Mormon connections to, to things related to scariness and things you would expect to hear about on Halloween, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about some of the LDS teachings that will kind of set up some of our discussion? Yeah. So, so there's, there's quite a bit of, uh, of L, there, there are quite a few LDS teachings out there about spirits, and um, there I, I, I looked at a, a few talks, and, and I've noticed that the uh, and you've talked about this on your podcast before. Kind of the further back in time you go, the more speculative and uh, it seems certain we are on on some of these things, um, and, and you don't get a lot in the in the present time. But um, kind of some of the basics. Uh, Brigham Young said that the spirit world is here on the earth. And, uh, we have as recently as President Ezra Taft Benson declaring the spirit world is not far away. Sometimes the veil between this life and the life beyond becomes very thin. Our loved ones who have passed on are not far from us. So, so the idea being that the, the spirit world is a part of this world. There's a, a thin veil 
And um, there, there's also this idea, though, that there's a, a, a barrier placed between one sphere and the other. Um, and and sometimes it becomes very thin. And, and I'm going to, to talk about this idea, too. But, but in Mormonism, there's this idea that spirit matter and physical matter are different. And so there's this quote by Brigham Young. He says, spirits are just as familiar familiar with spirits as bodies are with bodies, though spirits are composed of matter so refined as not to be tangible to this coarser organization. So so you get the sense that the spirit world is here, um, but it's kind of a, a different dimension, if you will. They can interact with, with their spirit bodies. We can interact with our physical bodies, but but uh, the, the two don't don't intersect very often. Um, another thing that that I thought was interesting that I've I've heard is this idea that um, people in the spirit world are very busy, so they're they're always working on something. Um, and uh, this is this is a quote from uh, Leroy Snow, um, who was the son of Lorenzo Snow, and uh, he said that. Um, there, there was an experience of someone who'd, who'd visited the spirit world and said that there was a, a guide that was there to meet her. And she was accompanied into a very large building where there are many people, all of whom appeared to be extremely bu- busy, no evidence of idleness whatsoever. So, uh, it sounds like from some of these things, the spirit world is, is kind of like a, an MTC, uh, slash temple where, where people are, are busy, uh, doing, doing work. Um, one one other aspect that I wanted to, to talk about that I, I will tie in later. Um, so there, uh, I, I found some quotes. Uh, this is from Joseph X. F. Smith, who explained, The spirits of our children are immortal before they came to us, and their spirits after bodily death are like they were before they came. They are as they would have appeared if they had lived in the flesh, grown to maturity, or to develop their physical bodies to the full stature of their spirits. If you see one of your children that has passed away, it may appear to you in the form in which you would recognize it, the form of childhood. But if it came to you as a messenger bearing some important truth, it would perhaps come as a spirit. Uh, and then this Bishop Edward Hunter's son came to him in the stature of full-grown manhood and revealed himself to his father and said, I am your son. So so basically, um, the, this is kind of tying into this idea that there are no children in the spirit world. People become full-grown adults. Um, and then there's also kind of this confusing uh, counter to that where Joseph Smith says that women will be able to raise their children in the resurrection. So you get this idea that Spirits become adults, but in the resurrection, if there are children who died when they were young, they'll they'll go to that young state, and their mothers will be able to to raise them. I uh, I just want to step in for just a second. Like the story with Bishop Hunter, his kid passes away as a little boy, comes to him as a grown man. Like that would scare the bejeebies out of me, Zachary. Yeah. Uh, that's some crazy stuff to. To have a, a grown man show up to you and tell you that he's your ten-year-old kid who passed away—that uh, I don't know that I would be ready for something like that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting tidbit, and I haven't I haven't heard that much uh, growing up in the church. I, I never remember hearing that, so I don't know if that's one of these doctrines that maybe 
you know, was, was taught previously uh, by by Joseph F. Smith, and then we've kind of had it fall by the wayside. But I, I'm with you. I thought that was very interesting. Um, just another tidbit. Um, he, the, this Bishop Hunter with that story, um, he he went to this is Joseph F. Smith telling the the story. And he says. Bishop Hunter did not understand it. He went to my father and said, Hiram, what does this mean? Which is Hiram Smith. I buried my son when he was a little boy, but he has come to me as a full grown man, a noble, glorious young man and declared himself my son. What does it mean? And then Hiram comes to him, uh, comes back and says that the spirit of Jesus Christ was full grown before he was born in the world. And so our children were full grown and possessed their stature in the spirit before they entered mortality. So, so yeah, that, I, I agree that it would be be quite frightening, and I I do think this was an interesting tidbit that uh, that maybe isn't isn't taught very much anymore. Right, right. So you mentioned Joseph F. Smith. Um, I know you've got a section here where you talk about uh, Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, maybe to some extent Joseph F. Smith. But there's there's certainly a eagerness on the part of Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie to, to spell out answers for everything. And they cover so much of the occult, the uh, anything that has to do with ghosts or spirits or what, what these, uh, what situations these spirits are in. Maybe talk for a moment about some of the things that those guys, uh, those guys taught. Yeah. So, so uh, exactly. We have a, uh, and this, I'll jump into a, an interesting story here. Um, and this is, this is one that, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said that was one of his father's favorites. So this would be Joseph F. Smith's one of his favorite stories. And so, uh, in the, in the story, there's a, a couple of missionaries who visit a spirit medium. And, and just to give a little bit of background, um, in the, the late 19th, 19th century and early 20th century, this, this was kind of all the rage were these spirit mediums, spiritualisms, seances. Um, that's, that's kind of, that was introduced into, uh, the culture in England and America. And, and it had been there before, but it, it was, it was kind of all the rage. So anyway, in this, in this story, these Mormon missionaries visit a spiritual medium and his, their presence affects his ability to communicate with spirit. So he asks them to leave and they refuse. And so he offers to call them back. Uh, he, he offers to call back any spirit they would like. And so, so this is the quote. It says, to this, they readily agreed and asked to have Gadianton called back. In response to the medium's incantation, he was picked up and thrashed around, thrown on the floor and beaten. When he finally got rid of his unruly guests from the realms of Satan, he demanded of the missionaries, who in the hell is Gadianton? So I, I thought this was a, a great story. Um, I, I got a kick out of it. But but you kind of get this idea that uh, these these things are serious and and we don't we don't mess around with spiritualism or spirit medium. Um, there's a, a quote from Mormon doctrine where Bruce R. McConkie says, it is true that some mediums do make contact with spirits during seances. In most instances, however, such spirits are manifest themselves are probably the demons or devils who are cast out of heaven for rebellion. Righteous spirits have nothing but contempt and pity for the attempts of mediums to make contact with them. 
And so you, you have this, this idea here, um, that, that, that we'll tie back into, but, but it's this idea that when there's something, some kind of connection with the supernatural, um, some kind of ghost connection, I think, and, and this may come from, from this school of thought, but I think there's, there's a tendency to do one of two things. One is to either say it's, it's not real. It's, uh, it's fake or made up. And the second would be to say that it's of Satan and it's uh, an evil spirit, um, who's some kind of counterfeit. And, and there's, oh, there's one other, uh, quote, um, by Bruce R. McConkie says, I know very well that whether we are active or not, the invisible spirits are active and every person who desires and strives to be a saint is closely watched by fallen spirits that came here when Lucifer fell. And by the spirits of wicked persons who have been here in tabernacles and departed from them, but who are still under the control of the prince of power of the air. Those spirits are never idle. They are watching every person who wishes to do right and are continually prompting them to do wrong. This makes it necessary for us to be continually on our guard. Oh, and I apologize. That was in, uh, that was in the journal of, of discourses by, by Brigham Young, not a Bruce R. McConkie quote. It, it's so interesting, Zach, that You've got, and, and leave it up to Bruce R. McConkie and his father-in-law to, to just go into every one of these kinds of things. Ouija boards and seances and visiting spirits and, and always to have these, these ready set answers to these questions that in a sense we just recognize like they're guessing, but they're imposing those guesses as gospel answers to, to all of these deep questions. When you look up uh, Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie, I mean, his views on things like Ouija boards, he's almost giving credibility to these kinds of things, which in the mind of the Latter-day Saint makes them so much more serious rather than if you just dismiss them and Latter-day Saints could just brush these things off as, as not real. The leaders of the church almost make us, through their teachings, look for uh, spirits, look for demons and devils and, and, and the like. I, I agree. I think that, that, that we're, we're set up to, to believe, um, like I said, the, the second option is usually the explanation that the, that this is, this is real. This is the power of Satan being manifest and, uh, we should run for the hills. Right. Yep. And you've got, before we get into some of these stories, um, I also wanted you to share, there's a quote you had uh, in regards to Joseph F. Smith and the idea of, like, like what should our interaction be with these negative sources, this these evil spirits? Some people uh, in various either religious walks or um, just in the sadness of losing a loved one will want to try and contact the dead and try to talk to their, their deceased spouse. What are some of the, the quotes in the church from leaders in in terms of exploring this type of stuff? Yeah, we have uh, – this, this is a, a quote. This was fairly recent. Um, for There's one from James E. Faust. Um, and is that the one that you're, you're uh, thinking of where it says, it's not good to become intrigued by Satan and his mysteries. No good can come from getting close to evil. Like playing with fire, it is too easy to get burned. And, and that there he's quoting Joseph F. Smith, um, which I think is, is uh, what you're referencing. 
And then, and then President Faust goes on to say, the only safe course is to keep well distance from him and any of his wicked activities or nefarious practices, the mischief of devil worship, sorcery, casting spells, witchcraft, voodooism, black magic, and other forms of demonism should be avoided like the plague. Yeah, so it's it's not only, you know, somebody says some of this stuff, but then you get a leader right after who just requotes it and rehashes it and puts it back in the minds of Latter-day Saints. Exactly. So before, and again, we've put together, and I shouldn't say by, by we, I mean you, Zach, but you've put together uh, several uh, ghost or spiritual stories within Mormonism. Uh, I'm hoping, listeners, you're ready to have at least, and some of these have the hair stand up on the back of your neck. But I wanted you to at least, you've, you've got a section here where you at least wanted to set uh, maybe a foundation by talking a little bit about uh, non-Mormon ghost stories and maybe some of the ideas there that will mesh or not mesh with some of the LDS stuff. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one, one story that stood out to me, and, and this is, uh, one thing that, that kind of got my, my mind going on this. Um, there's a woman, uh, from Kentucky named Kathy McConnell. Um, and she, she tells a story of, uh, and, and this follows kind of the, the pattern of a lot of ghost stories, but they, they moved into a new home. Um, when she was looking at the home, she saw a little girl in, uh, in 19th century clothing in the window. Uh, this is when they were showing the home, and she asked the realtor, you know, was there a little girl living here? The realtor didn't know what she was talking about. They moved into the home. They hear all kinds of noises. Uh, there's there's mischief going on. Uh, her husband's shoes go missing, and they end up in the basement in the in the cellar. There's kind of some pranks, and and she she figures out that these are child ghosts. Um, and so there's balls thrown. Uh, there's there's other kind of childish uh, mis- mischief going on. Um, but also she she decides to befriend these ghosts. So she speaks to them. Uh, she leaves little little toys uh, for the the children. She figures out kind of their their ages. So there's a ball she leaves for one, a doll she leaves for a girl, and there's apparently a baby uh, that she she leaves some things for. Uh, but her own child, um, was, uh, in the, she was filling up the bath and she got distracted with something, ran upstairs and she tells of her, her child who was a, a toddler at the time who would have been drowning in the bath is, is in the air up above the water and these, uh, these child ghosts essentially, uh, saved her, her child. And so she, she, uh, and, and she doesn't like to call them uh, ghosts at the end of the story. She she thinks of them as as dear friends and and protectors. But but when I heard this story, I was interested because it, it seemed to contradict a lot of the the doctrinal things that we had talked about. Um, one, there not being any children spirits in the spirit world that they were adults. Uh, the other, uh, this kind of differentiation between. Uh, physical matter and spirit matter. These, these ghosts seem to be able to manipulate objects. They stole her husband's shoes. They lifted up her child. And then the, the third one of, uh, in, in Mormonism, we tend to think of the, the spirits. And I don't know if we, we touched on this, but the spirits either being good in, in paradise. And, and those are usually stories of family members who come, go back, come back and, 
either testify of some gospel principle or convey a message from the other side or evil spirits who are are part of this one third of the hosts or as that previous quote said, were, uh, were wicked when they were alive. And so I thought this was interesting that it, that this story seems to contradict a lot of the, uh, the doctrinal things that, that we believe about spirits. And, and don't forget, Zach, the good spirits also come back and help us with our family history. That's, this is true. <laughs> so with that, let's jump into some of these, uh, Mormon ghost stories. And, and maybe share a couple with this and then we can maybe talk about a couple of them before we go into some of the others. Yeah. And, and before we get into these, I, I wanted to make a, a couple points, Bill, if, if that's okay. Um, one is I, I don't know personally, um, you know, I, I don't know what to, to make of some of these. And, and I say that because I, I would guess that if, if, Somebody, uh, in church leadership or in a, uh, maybe in the, in the PR realms of the church were, was asked about some of these stories that they would be a little bit reluctant to, to speak on them or to, to say whether we accepted them as doctrine. And I think that's kind of previously in, in another era, People were more inclined to believe these things. They were more felt more of a connection to the supernatural, and and now we're we're removed for that from that. And so some of these stories uh, seem a little little strange and and maybe a little bit more like folklore. And so as, as we talk about some of these, I that that's one thing I want people to think about is is what do we do with these stories? A lot of them come from church leaders, from apostles. Do we accept them as true? Do we accept them as stories that maybe teach a principle or do we uh, maybe think of them as, as folklore? Beautiful. And it's, it's interesting to, to wonder those things because you're right. Even in just the last, let's say 20 years, there has been a huge difference in how much we rely on this kind of stuff versus so then i mean i grew up i joined the church in 1996 and in 1996 i felt like me and the members of my ward were still very superstitious of this kind of stuff and yet if i look today these kinds of conversations have disappeared from our conversations within our ward or within our priesthood class and and I think you're pointing to something which is just in a short time period something I think dramatic has shifted I, I think that's right and I think that uh, I, I was discussing this with some friends uh, today getting ready for the for this interview and, and I think one of the big things is that with the with the internet and the access to information a lot of these stories have been debunked and so uh, there, there used to be a uh, uh, kind of a, a rumor mill going and, and stories that a, a lot, most of them didn't, didn't turn out to, to have any kind of factual basis would be told, uh, that were generally faith promoting. Some of them were more, more scary. And, and I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, people didn't have the same way to fact check some of these stories and, and they, they were kind of taken at face value. Yeah, yeah. And so with that, let's jump into some of these. 
Okay, so the, the first story I, I wanted to share is one that maybe your your listeners have heard before. Um, I first ran across this. It, it used to be at one point in the introduction to the miracle of forgiveness, which I think was is interesting um, because it's it's kind of a I see that this almost as a bridge from from modern Mormonism with Spencer W. Kimball to to the past where maybe some of these stories would have been more prevalent. Um, but this is a story um, about uh, David W. Patton, who was a, a, an apostle. And he says, I was met with a very remarkable personage who had represented himself as being Cain, who had murdered his brother Abel. I suddenly noticed a very strange personage walking beside me for about two miles. His head was about even with my shoulders as I sat in my saddle. He wore no clothing, but was covered with hair. His skin was very dark. He said that he had no home, that he was a wanderer in the earth. He said that he was a very miserable creature, that he had earnestly sought death, but that he could not die, and his mission was to destroy the souls of men. I rebuked him in the name of Jesus Christ and by virtue of the holy priesthood and commanded him to go hence, and he immediately departed out of my sight. And so this was was, was written in about 1900, so not... Uh, all that long ago, but kind of this transition period from the, the kind of pioneer Mormonism to more of the modern Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he's got Cain who, who this is kind of this introduction of Cain being Bigfoot that is so prevalent in the 1980s of, of Mormonism as we, as we shared these kinds of stories, but you've got Cain being up to the shoulders of David Patton, and at the same time, as we transition to Cain being Bigfoot, the idea that Bigfoot is so much bigger, so much taller than any human being, and yet in this original story where this myth begins, you've got you've got Cain or Bigfoot essentially being shorter than David W. Patton, who's not even I don't think even six foot tall. Yeah, that, that's interesting, um, and. Uh... You know, you get the, you get the hair, um, the, the darkness, but, but like you said, yeah, not as, not as tall. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, where do we go from here? So there's actually, there's another Kane story, which is a good one. I, I hadn't, uh, I haven't heard this one as much, but this is from E. Wesley Smith, who was the, the son of President Joseph F. Smith. And he wrote about this the night before the dedication of the Laie Hawaii Temple. So this is in Hawaii. A man came through the door. He was tall enough to have to stoop to enter. His eyes were very protruding and rather wild looking. His fingernails were thick and long. He presented a rather unkempt appearance and wore no clothing at all. There suddenly appeared in, in my right hand. This is, uh, E. Wesley Smith. A light which had the size and appearance of a dagger. A voice said, this is your priesthood. He commanded the person in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to depart. Immediately when the light appeared, a person's, the person stopped and on being commanded to leave, he backed out the door. And then, uh, E. Wesley Smith later wrote about this to his brother, Joseph Fielding Smith, who said it was Cain whose curse was to roam the earth seeking whom he may destroy. So, so you see some parallels, uh, with, with the other story. Um, he's, he's tall enough to have to stoop to enter the room. Uh, he's, he's rebuked, uh, by the priesthood. And I thought this, 
this part about the the dagger appearing was was an interesting detail. I, I also thought it was interesting that um, it, it seems like you know this is a this is the son of of President Joseph F. Smith, and then he writes to his brother Joseph Fielding Smith, who seems to to validate the experience. Yeah, and 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 obviously Kane has grown a few inches since he visited W David W. Patton. But outside of that, like, so dealing with Kane is scary enough. Like, that would be horrible. But I can only imagine something worse would be dealing directly with Satan. Do we've got, do we have any stories where Satan's involved? We do. Uh, this one is one that I remember hearing growing up. Uh, and this is from Mariner W. Merrill, who was an apostle and he was the, the president of the Logan Temple. And, and this is, uh, I'll read the, the account. Uh, Logan President, Logan Temple President Mariner W. Merrill was sitting in his office one morning in the early 1890s when he heard a commotion outside. Stepping to the window, he saw a great congregation of people coming up the Temple Hill, some on foot and others on horseback and in carriages. President Merrill's first thought was, what will we do with so many people if we fill every room in the temple? It will not begin to hold them all. The riders tied their horses up at hitching posts or turned them loose on the temple corrals and walked complacently about the front grounds without seeming to have much purpose in mind. They were a rather an odd-looking group and were dressed quite shabbily. They made no effort to enter the temple, so President Merrill went out to greet them and see what he could do for the group. He said to the, their leader, Who are you and who are these people who have taken possession of the temple grounds unannounced? He answered, I am Satan and these are my people. Brother Merrill asked, What do you want? And why have you come here? Satan replied, I do not like what is being done in the Logan Temple and have come to stop it. That was a bit of a shock to President Merrill, and he answered, No, we will not stop it. This is the work of the Lord and must go on. You know that you or anyone else cannot stop the work of the Lord. If re if you refuse to stop it, this is Satan, I will tell you what I propose to do, the adversary said. I will scatter this congregation of people throughout these valleys and we will keep people from coming to the temple. We will whisper in their ears and discourage them from attending the temple. This will stop your temple work. President Merrill then used the power of his priesthood and commanded Satan and his followers to depart, depart from holy ground. He said that within four or five minutes, there was not a person, horse, or buggy in sight. They just disappeared into thin air and were gone. And then the, the story transitions a little bit, and there's kind of this, this moral that, that's woven in um, that, that I'll talk about a, a little bit. Then for the next 10 or 12 years, we could have closed the Logan Temple for very little work was accomplished. In one full year, the number of endowments done totaled only 5,121, while in our day we have done 3,064 in one day. Where uh, all ordinances for the year equaled but 20,110, today we have done 15,456 in one day and a total of 1,808,265 for the full year. Uh, and then we have these stories of people who, um, so this is an example. This Christian L. Olson lived only a half a mile from the temple, and he said anytime he said out loud he's going to the temple, something happened to keep him away. One evening he said to the boys, tomorrow we will finish grinding our molasses, and then I'd like to spend a week in the temple. The mill was operating perfectly that evening, but the next morning the main wheel was broken. The more they repaired the machine, the more things broke and went wrong with it. He finally spent the full week making repairs so that one day's grind of molasses can be completed. He did not get to spend a week at the temple. Um, and then you have these other stories, uh, cows getting out when they say audibly that 
they're going to go to the temple after they milk their cows. Another time he planned a day in the temple, he got up to milk cows, his cows, and the corral gate was open. He spent the day hunting cows in the west field. Still another time, the corral gate was open again, and the horses were gone. It took two days to find them in Logan Canyon. He said, any time I wanted to go to the temple, I soon learned that I could not say it out loud. I got up, milked my cows, set the bucket down, and ran. Then I could not then I could get there without any trouble. Um, and so then uh, he he ends with this uh, kind of teaching message. The evil one's power and influence are real. He knows the value of temple work and would do anything in his power to keep people away. But he failed to recognize the faithfulness and devotion of the saints in this area for that they were not easily discouraged. And, and there's a few things that stand out in this story. Um, one, I, I remember growing up hearing this taught as kind of a, a folk doctrine that if you said out loud that you were going to go to the temple, that Satan was going to do everything he could to stop you. And I think it's interesting in these stories that Satan is able to manipulate physical matter. So he, he stops the, the molasses mill. He lets the cows out. Um, he's able to do those things. I also think that, that it's interesting that, uh, that he would, in the story, when he appears on the temple grounds with all his, his people, that the, the president Merrill wouldn't recognize that they weren't real people, that they were kind of evil spirits or that it was, it was Satan. Um, and then they have, uh, you know, buggies, carriages, and they're, they're also riding horses. Um, and so, so this story I think is an interesting one for those reasons. And, and this is one that seems to be, uh, a, a teaching story. Um, and, and I'm not sure, but it does come from an apostle and it, it, uh, that adds, adds some, some credibility to it. Yeah. My, my thoughts here, two things. The, the first one is you're talking about this idea that anytime they're, they're intending to do the right thing within the gospel, something negative happens. And, and part of me wonders, if we go to an earlier time in history where less seems to be explainable, that maybe 99 or 95 out of 100 times things go fine, and then just normal life, like five times you get interrupted with something breaking down or something not being right or an animal getting loose. And and I think we as humans put so much emphasis on that one moment when something doesn't go wrong I'm sorry, when something does go wrong, that we sometimes overemphasize it. And I can, the second thing was I can speak to it directly, which is my life was pretty darn smooth as a member of the church in the, the first, say, five years of my membership. But I remember like some of these events where I would tell myself that Satan or one of the evil spirits was trying to tempt me or trying to, to interrupt my day or keep me from doing something. I, I remember when me and my my girlfriend, who became my wife later, we went to get our patriarchal blessings. And the patriarch lived uh, about an hour and 20 minutes away from our house. And we got about 35 minutes down the road, and we got a flat tire. And, oh, wow. And, and for the longest time, like, my wife and I said, oh, yeah, you know, we, we were going to do this good thing. It was this thing God wanted us to do. And the adversary and his minions... Uh, interrupted it and stopped it and caused that to happen. 
never mind that this was like a 15-year-old car with 200,000 miles and bald tires. Like that didn't <laughs> matter, right? Because yeah. we look for the meaning in things that we want to see. Exactly. And I, I think that, um, you know, if, if we take this, that, that story at, at face value, you know, those are, those are some pretty amazing powers that, that Satan has, um, that, that seem, uh, you know, pretty, pretty astounding that he can, can stop all these things and, and manipulate. But I, I think that we, uh, you know, growing up, the, like you said, the, those are kind of, things that that maybe would would be coincidences or attributed to uh Satan trying to to stop the work. And and on the other hand, I've got like you, I've got no explanation for him looking out the temple window and seeing, you know, dozens and dozens of people walking up and on horse and in carriage. But it does seem odd that he it, like you say like he it doesn't cross his mind and maybe a separate point from what you were talking about, but it doesn't cross his mind that this is odd that there are so many people showing up at this very moment to do temple work, and he's worried about how he's going to seat all these people. Yeah, and and uh, I I think you know this this kind of there there's also a, a theme of uh, this kind of feeds into a, a theme of other stories that that make the rounds. I, I don't know if you've heard the. There, there's another story about, um, you know, evil spirits trying to enter the MTC and there being, you know, some kind of stripling warriors guarding the gates. Or there's another one of uh, a famous missionary one of, of sister missionaries, uh, tracked into, uh, the, the door of some kind of serial killer who doesn't, doesn't invite them in. And when he's later arrested and questioned by the police, he said, I was scared of the, the big guys behind them. So, so you, uh, you know, in this, this story by president, by, uh, by Mariner Merrill, you, you don't, you don't have the, the angels or the, the other force coming to, to save the day. They just kind of leave. And in some of these later stories, you kind of have this, this, uh, battle of supernatural forces between the, the stripling warriors or the, uh, the guardian angels and the, the forces of evil. Right, right. And you shared this Gaddy Anton one in the beginning, but you've got some others with missionaries and some other things that are going on. Maybe tell us some of those. Yeah, so, uh, I, I went on a, I, I served a mission in Taiwan, uh, in, in, uh, Taipei, which is kind of the main city. And, and I remember hearing a lot of these stories when I was in the MTC. And, and this was kind of the pre-internet era. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of, uh, took these at, at face value and, and people kind of love to, to tell these stories as if they were fact. One that I remember hearing a lot, um, is a story of two missionaries who are doing their laundry at a laundromat. And for some reason they have to leave for a few minutes. Um, and I've also heard this version of the story where the, you know, one of the missionaries inadvertently, uh, leaves a, a pair of garments. When they return, they see that the laundromat has displayed their garments in the window with some sort of rude sign. Uh, sometimes it says, like, here's what Mormons wear. Here's their magical underwear. Here's their Mormon monkey suit. And they they uh, call the mission president and ask what to do. And the, the mission president advises them to do the the curse that is outlined in the, the New Testament of wiping the dust off their feet uh, of the building. And then they leave, and then the next day they return, and the laundromat has burned to the ground. 
So, uh, this is, this is a pretty, this is a favorite mission story. Um, I'm sure that the other listeners have, have heard before. Yeah, it's, I, I think, I think these things tend to be more prominent in terms of myths being created about missionaries. And, and I can only look back at some of the different stories that missionaries who came through uh, our ward, some of the like urban legends and, and folklore that they had been told that had been passed down from, you know, missionary companionship to missionary companionship where 10 years later, these stories were still going along. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, there's, uh, you know, also the stories of the, uh, the good missionary who, who decides to test the powers of Satan. Uh, here's one. And so there's a, a missionary. He's had a great mission toward the end of the mission. He says, Hey, what the heck? I'm going to test the powers of Satan. So he decides to pray to Satan. He leaves his companion, goes into a closet that was in their apartment. And his companion, after missing him, noticed that the closet the door was open about an inch. And so he walked over to the closet and tried to open up the door and couldn't get it open. So he calls the mission president, and the mission president comes over with his assistants, and together they all pry open the door. And finally, when they get it open, the elder is kneeling in prayer, but he's up off the ground about two feet, suspended in the air. They administer to him, but he falls on the floor dead. Um, and, and so that's, uh, you know, that's another, another kind of mission lore story of, of a missionary, um, who's done what he should. And then he decides to be stupid and, and test the powers of Satan and, and pays the price. Yeah. And, and to maybe just throw in something along with that, like I know people who have some of these stories, not as something they were told, but have experienced some of these firsthand. Like I've got, um, friends back in my old ward in Ohio that when, when they were serving missions, they would talk about how, you know, the one was, was so serious that he was, you know, uh, his companion was picked up off the ground, that, um, his one companion he felt was, um, possessed by an evil spirit and how they had to call the mission president in to, to cast it out. Like, I don't know what to make of some of these stories either, Zach, but, it seems like this age and kind of being off on your own and, and is almost this primal ground for these kinds of experiences to happen. Yeah, and, and we had we had a few kind of things like that in, in my mission too. I, I didn't directly experience them, but I remember hearing rumors um, and uh, and everybody was was kind of freaked out. But yeah, I I don't know I don't know what to make of them. I think it's. Uh, uh, and, and that's that's kind of my take in general is I, I think it's hard to uh, be people that believe in the supernatural and then um, be kind of forced to pick and choose which aspects of the supernatural that we we believe in or which stories we'll subscribe to. Right, right. Some of these stories seem like easy things to dismiss and set aside and other ones that you're sharing seem to be much tougher to come up with a reasonable explanation for why a good, honest human being would come up with this extravagant story. Yeah. So what other ones do we have? So I, I wanted to, to segue a little bit and, and talk about, um, I, I kind of mentioned when, when I was growing up in the eighties, there was kind of this, uh, fear, uh, that was kind of gripping our, our area. And I, I think it was pretty widespread in, in America. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the the 
classic horror movie, Rosemary's Baby, that I think came out in the late 60s. Uh, but it's about a, uh, a couple that moves into an apartment in New York. They're befriended by this very charming elderly couple who turn out to be part of the secret satanic cult. And uh, Rosemary is tricked into to having the, the spawn of Satan as her, her baby. Um, are, are you familiar with that movie, Bill? So no, I've I know the name of it. I know the basic narrative that it's it's portraying, but no, I've never watched it myself. Yeah. So so that kind of for whatever reason set off this um, this kind of panic. And I think uh, there, there's a great uh, if you want to hear a great podcast on it. There's one called Stuff You Should Know: The Satanic Panic of the Eighties. Um, that I thought was really informative. But there's a few social things going on. One, women were, were working outside the home, and so a lot of children were going to daycare. And there was kind of a lot of fear around drugs and and sex in the society, and, and people were uneasy. And so uh, in the 70s and 80s, there were all these accusations, uh, usually to daycare centers, that people were involved in satanic cults. And that they were sacrificing and abusing kids. And, and the sad thing is a lot of, uh, a lot of places, especially in the, in the deep south and the Bible belt took these things seriously. And some of these people were put on trial and, uh, actually went to jail for things that were pretty preposterous. And, uh, they were later exonerated, but, but there was, that was kind of a, you know, it, it was almost a modern day, uh, witch hunt. Uh, for these people and, and there are all kinds of misleading things in the trials where, um, the, the kids were kind of coached to, to implicate these people, which is, was a sad thing. Um, but I wanted to talk about a, a book that came out called Jay's Journal, um, that, that kind of was, was the basis of all this, uh, of all this fright, um, where, where I was living. And, uh, Bill, are you, are you, uh, are you still with me? I am. And I don't know if you're going to touch on this or not, but what, what's coming to mind is I remember there being a general authority who was asked by the top 15 to go figure out some of these areas where members of the church, like good active members of the church were doing some occultic stuff and some satanic worship and to report back to the brethren on what was going on. And, and I wondered if, if that's what we're talking about to some extent, or if you're aware of what I'm talking about and if there's a connection between the two. Uh, yeah. So, so you're talking about the, the general authority. I believe it was uh, Lynn Pace in the early nineties that was went out and investigated some of these uh, claims that there were these cults going on. Yeah, and it's this kind of same, maybe the end of it, but the same time period. And it seems like everybody's concerned about this kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and there was, uh, I mean, I remember in our town, we had all these lovely spots in the mountains. And I remember, you know, people saying, you can't go up there anymore. There's a satanic cult that's taken over and they're kidnapping and sacrificing kids and and there was just kind of this this fear, and and people were really freaked out. Um, so in in 1971, in the town of Pleasant Grove, there was a kid named Alden Barrett 
who who got involved with drugs. Uh, I think he you know had some depression and and was a really bright kid. He tragically ended up committing suicide, and so the the family was was really uh, heartbroken, and they reached out to a woman named Beatrice Sparks, who who kind of had a reputation. She was a therapist, and she had a reputation for helping troubled teens. And, and kind of coaching people through some of these, these scary things in the society. Um, she'd written a book in the, about drugs in 1970 called Go Ask, Al- Go Ask Alice. And so the, the Barrett family reached out to her and they gave her their son's journal, um, and, and hoped that she'd, uh, publish it or talk about it and, and help prevent other kids from, from committing suicide. And so this, I, I think this is really a, a tragic story and, and kind of, um, you know, somebody who really capitalized on a, a family's tragedy and fears. But when the, when it was published, she had changed the, the names and changed the location. Um, but she didn't, she didn't do a great job. In, in Pleasant Grove, there is, uh, kind of the local haunt is called the Purple Turtle. And, and she changed that to the Blue Moo. And so there are enough things in there that people figured out pretty, pretty fast that it was a story of this Alden Barrett. And she totally sensationalized, um, the, the journal. So the family claims that she only used 21 of the actual 212 entries and she fabricated the rest. But what came out was this highly sensationalized story about this boy in Pleasant Grove who got involved in this satanic cult, their missionaries, their ceremonies, um, all these things, and he ends up getting possessed by a demon named Raul and commits suicide. So um and the the family and this is this is sad too, is when people figured out that it was this this Barrett family, they were the subject of all kinds of cruel pranks by high school kids. His his uh, tombstone got vandalized and 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 it's really just kind of a sad story um and and kind of a i i think it's it's indicative of these things getting totally out of hand and sensationalized and there being such a fear about these things uh kind of all around the country that uh people really believed it and it and it really kind of took a, on a life of its own right and and you've got one of these journal entries um that she used and, and like you say, likely embellished, but, uh, you've got one of those as part of this, correct? I, I do. So I'll read this and, and you can see, um, you know, especially if you're, you're LDS, all these, these bells will kind of start ringing of things that sound familiar. And so this is, this is Jay's journal entry. Um, he says, about an hour ago, I got up because I could feel that someone was staring at me. I got up and tried to turn on all the lights in the room, but they wouldn't work. Only a small light that I'm afraid to sleep without remained glowing. I flopped onto my knees to pray, but the staring entity with cosmic consciousness type of power stopped me. Breathing heavily, I forced myself to look up. Across the bed from me was a person, I swear by all the Bibles in the world. He was real, as real as I am real. His skin was more gray than mine like more refined matter. Where did I hear that? But other than that, he's just like me, probably in his late 20s, good-looking, sharp, and thin, wearing a gray kind of tight-fitting jumpsuit thing. The whole conversation remains seared upon my mind, word for word. Hello again, Jay. Who are you? I'm Rawl. What do you want? 
You know, he smiled, a most knowing, frightening little mouth twist. But you're not real. I'm not. I pulled away, having to know, but not really wanting to ask. Who are you? I whispered hoarsely. He folded his arms across his chest and in a mocking way stated matter-of-factly, Remember the third of the hosts of heaven that were cast out without bodies? I nodded weakly, wanting more than anything in the world for the whole thing to be a bad dream, but knowing beyond a shadow of doubt it was not. What do you want? He grinned. Would you believe your young, virile bod? So I I think there's uh, some of the things that, that would probably ring a lot of bells with Mormons. He's he's besieged by this power. He uh, tries to pray but this demon stops him. Uh, so sounds like the 1838 account of the first vision. Um, his, uh, he looks like a person, but more refined matter. So we have kind of tying back to that, uh, Brigham Young quote that we talked about earlier, where the spirit matter is similar to ours, but more refined. And then we, we have this, this talk of, uh, him being part of the third of the, host of heaven that was cast out and now he's come back to torment and possess the the body of uh jay excellent yeah that's and it's interesting like it'd be it'd be interesting to know if if we had access to the to the actual journal to see how much she had um taken and altered and and changed and how much of whatever Jay was struggling with how much of that was um, real and authentic. It would just be an interesting find. I know you've got one more story with Heber C. Kimball, but before you shared that, do you mind if I share one of my own that I was looking up as uh, I prepared to, to have this conversation with you? I'd love to hear it. So this is one that's always stuck with me as one that I don't have a good explanation for. And this is um, Bishop Henry Ballard. Uh, this is back in 1884, and it said in May of 1884, Bishop Henry Ballard of the Logan Second Ward was signing temple recommends at his home. Henry's nine-year-old daughter, who was talking with friends on the sidewalk near her home, saw two elderly men approaching. They called to her, handed her a newspaper, and told her to take it to her father. The girl did uh, as she was asked. Bishop Ballard saw the paper. The Newbury Weekly News, published in England, contained the names of more than 60 of his and his father's acquaintances, along with genealogical information. This newspaper, dated 15 May 1884, and been given to him only three days after it had been printed. In a time long before air transportation, when mail took several weeks to get from England to Western America, this was a miracle. The next day, Bishop Ballard took the newspaper to the temple, told the story of its arrival to Mariner W. Merrill, again, same guy we talked about earlier. Um, President Merrill declared, Brother Ballard, someone on the other side is anxious for their work to be done, and they knew that you would do it if this paper got into your hands. This newspaper is preserved in the Church Historical Library in Salt Lake City, Utah. So, number one, you've got evidence. You've got the paper, which is actually stored with the church. You have multiple witnesses who are leaders of the church. They get this newspaper three days after the print date, and it's impossible in that day 
for three days worth of travel, no matter what the means, to get a newspaper to them, and it contains all the genealogy of of this dear bishop, um, which helps him to do his own family history work. It, it just seems like a a crazy story, and yet there's enough data here that one can actually go to the church history department, ask to see the newspaper. It's in this, you know, they've got it. It's one of these that just makes it really difficult to kind of explain away. That's a really interesting one. And I hadn't heard that one before. And I think you make, make some good points. Uh, just kind of the tangible evidence, uh, seem to be a lot of witnesses and, uh, it, it just seems un- unexplainable. Yeah. The, and, and of course, the one connecting dot is you have the same person, right? The guy you shared earlier from the 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 temple story was Mariner Merrill as well. Yes. Yeah. So you have this guy who seems to be the lucky guy to have all these experiences happen in in his presence. Yeah, that, that's interesting, and I I think that uh, another thing is that um, you know that we we touched on a little bit is that people. Not, not necessarily the, the scary ghost stories, but the, the good ones like this were things that really energized people and, and were, were really fun and interesting in the, uh, the, the Mormon experience. And I think we've, we've kind of stepped away from those mystical elements as we've come into this, uh, information age and, and things have gotten more streamlined. But, but there seems to be something that, that people miss about more of the, the mystical, aspects that we've we've given up yeah I, I certainly would say it's much more interesting to live in an age where not everything is explainable and when something odd happens and you've been taught kind of this kind of background to it to let your mind wander to the possibilities of it being something or someone from the other side interacting with you i, I know you've got this last story with heber c kimball uh, and wilford woodruff in england um, I know, and I know you've got some closing thoughts, but I thought this would be a, a great story to kind of finish off with. Yeah. And so if you, if you remember your church history, the, the 12 went to England, they had tremendous success. And this was, uh, when Heber C. Kimball and Wilford Woodruff were, were part of that missionary effort. It says, I, I then arose and sat upon the bed when a vision was open to our minds and we could distinctly see the evil spirits who foamed and gnashed their teeth at us. We gazed upon them for about an hour and a half by Willard's watch. We were not looking towards the window, but towards the wall. Space appeared before us, and we saw the devils coming in legions with their leaders who came within a few feet of us. They came towards us like armies rushing to battle. They appeared to be men of full stature, possessing every form and feature of men in the flesh who were angry and desperate, and I shall never forget the vindictive malignity depicted on their countenances as they looked me in the eye, and any attempt to paint the scene which then presented itself or portray their malice and enmity would be vain. I perspired exceedingly, my clothes becoming as wet as if I had been taken out of the river. I felt excessive pain, and it was the greatest distress for some time. I cannot even look back on the scene without feelings of horror, yet by it I learned the power of the adversary, his enmity against the servants of God, and got some understanding of the invisible world. We distinctly heard these spirits talk and express their wrath and hellish designs against us. However, the Lord delivered us from them, and blessed and blessed us that exceedingly that day. When he returned home, Heber C. Kimball asked the prophet Joseph Smith, what was the matter 
What was the matter of us? What had we done that we had been submitted to such an experience? Joseph responded, Brother Heber, at that time you were nigh unto the Lord. There was only a veil between you and him, but you could not see him. When I heard of it, it gave me great joy, for I knew that the work of God had taken root in that land. It was this that caused the devil to make a struggle to kill you. The nearer a person approaches the Lord, the greater the power will be manifested by the adversary to prevent the accomplishment of his purpose purposes. Yeah, fascinating story. And the language, this is another thing I think we've lost, but the language that he uses in telling it, they appeared to be men of full stature, possessing every form and feature of men in the flesh. They were angry and desperate, and I shall never forget the vindictive malignity depicted on their countenances. We just don't talk like that anymore, and I think the language itself makes it scarier. Yeah, it does. Uh, and, and then you have these, these details of, you know, he was so wet with sweat. It looked like he'd been in the river. Um, it, it really makes the, the story come alive. Yeah. The, these stories are fascinating. Um, and, and I hope the listeners have enjoyed this kind of Mormon, uh, these ghost stories and, and spiritual presence. Uh, the presence of, of different spirits and, and things, whether on the good side or bad side and the, the interaction they have with us mortals. It, it's interesting that we've talked throughout this episode about how these stories have diminished and we don't really look to this kind of stuff anymore. And I can remember even, you know, again, I'm, I'm only 30, just turned 39 and, and I joined the church, you know, 22, 23 years ago. And when I was a, a member early on, I mean, stories of the three Nephites, stories of people having died and gone to the spirit world, uh, stories of people helping you do your genealogy, uh, spirits from the other side assisting you in doing that. Those were prevalent. They were part of the things we talked about in our lessons. They were things we talked about to each other as ward members. And, and I can remember going out and giving blessings with another priesthood holder and having this fear that, that that the adversary might be interacting with with people at times when I would go out and give blessings. Um, there is a part of me that's that's remiss that we've we've lost this simply because we are in an information age where it, it, things are much easier to explain, and so we look for rational explanations rather than the mystical, mysterious stuff. Yeah, I, I agree, and and uh, it it is a lot less fun and, and interesting and, and I uh you know have a similar experience to, to you where especially um you know even more in my in my youth I remember more more of these stories and and even as a kid um you know those are those are pretty interesting to hear when you're in sacrament meeting if if somebody I think I was kind of on the, the tail end of the three Nephite stories um by by then, people were kind of taking them with a little bit more of a grain of salt, but you'd occasionally hear them, and um, it, it it was a lot of fun. Uh, any concluding thoughts from you? Things that you think we should uh, touch on before we wrap up? You know, I, I I think we've we've touched on a lot of them, but I I think these are interesting questions to to think about of of just what do we make of of these stories? You know, in this in this age when we're looking at uh, historical detail, uh, parsing things out, seeing where, where things came from, looking at sources, um, and, and you have a lot of these, uh, questions that people are asking about things like the, the first vision, 
um, uh, some of the the early experiences in the church. Where do we? What do we do with these stories? Do we um, take them as fact? Do we take them with a big grain of salt? Do we think of them as as folklore? Um, and and also the the other thing is I you know as as people um, do in some sense have some lack of enthusiasm about the the church not only with people who are maybe questioning but but just the the lay membership you, you hear a lot of people complaining that it's it's boring um, what are some things that we could do in this information age to maybe introduce some of those mystical elements back in in a way that would energize and engage engage the membership while still uh being in the information age and having the the problem of everything being being verifiable. My father uh, grew up in rural southeastern Idaho, and one of his favorite things to say is, "Never let the facts get in the way of a good story." Um, and I think that that that's pretty indicative of of where we are. Is that uh, you know a lot of the times that facts do get in the way of of stories in this in this day and age, and these stories that we've told are, are removed enough that um, they can kind of stand on their own because there aren't a lot of facts to either verify or contradict the stories. Right, and if you can't prove the story false, then you might as well use it. That's true. That's it, Zach <laughs> Durr. Thank you so much uh, for sitting down with us tonight. I hope the listeners enjoyed this special Halloween edition of Mormon discussion and I just want to say thank you for doing all the research on this and, and because I, I don't think there's a ton of ghostly type stories within Mormonism. We do have some spiritual um, founding events in our faith where angels show up to deliver keys or to do things like that but this kind of scary evil spirit there's not a ton of them, and you went out and you found a bunch of them. I just want to say thank you for the research, and thank you for making uh, this Halloween edition a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun uh, reading these and, and being a part of it, so I appreciate it. 